welcome to Beyond the Crucible. I'm Warwick Fairfax, the founder of Crucible Leadership. We've all heard people say, don't take your eye off the ball. But here's the truth, right? Sometimes you have to take your eye off the ball and put your eye on the ball players. You have to, to, to keep in mind that, yeah, the ball, the vision, the game is important, but you need the ball players to get you the victory. That, friends, can be a whole lot easier said than done. If that wasn't the case, we wouldn't be dedicating an entire podcast episode to the need to balance your vision as a leader with caring for the team that helps you accomplish that vision. Hi, I'm Gary Schneeberger, co-host of the show and the communications director for Crucible Leadership. Today, Warwick and I talk through his most recent blog about just how you maintain that delicate balance between pursuing the values you hold most dear and treating well the men and women who are sharing that journey to a life of significance with you. From keeping your ego in check to focusing on the process, not on chasing an outcome. From making sure team members know you value them as much as you value your vision to walking the talk so they believe it, we lay out Warwick's roadmap to both bouncing back from past crucibles and avoiding future ones. So, listener, what we're going to talk about today, uh, this is one of those episodes, if you have been listening for a while, uh, where Warwick and I don't have a guest, it's just the two of us sort of uh, knocking about with crucible leadership concepts. And the idea behind this one is, and again, it's always fun, I say it all the time when it happens, we're not exactly sure what we're going to call it, and when we don't know what we're going to call it, it's great because... We'll know what to call it when we're done, but you already know what we called it before you clicked on it because it's done for you. It's happening for us. So this will be fun. This will be discovery for both of us. We're discovering kind of what the show's primary thrust is going to be in terms of what we're going to name it. And uh, you already know that because you saw it when you clicked. But the idea behind it is that uh, you kind of, you need as a leader to balance your task, your vision. And the people who you have called to you to carry out that vision, there's a balance required. If it's out of alignment, not to get too personal, but I have a bad back. Sometimes my back's out of alignment. That's not good. If your vision and your relationship, your care of your relationship with your team is out of out of alignment, out of whack, it can cause some problems. And that's what we're kind of going to walk through, what the problems can be and then where we like to live in the solutions. So that's a fair summary of where we're at, right, Warwick? Yeah, it, yeah, it is. Often we just think of uh, visionaries that are trying to get this grand cause accomplished. And sometimes what can happen is you're so focused on your vision accomplishing your goals that people can fall by the wayside. And it's often not because we intend to hurt anybody or ignore people. We just get really focused on the vision. And the funny thing is that the more passionate you are about the vision, the more you think that your vision really matters, can help a lot of people. It's almost the more dangerous the situation can be, almost the more likely, if you're not careful of 
treading on people, ignoring them, or, or hurting them, which is sort of ironic. Because for some people, you're all about making the world a better place, but in the process, you can you know, tread over people or crush them in the process. You don't intend to, but it can happen. So that's really the, the core thought about this podcast. And it's interesting that we're talking about vision because what you just described can be a different kind of vision, which is tunnel vision. You can get tunnel vision sometimes as you pursue a vision. You can focus so much on the vision that you forget to put energy, effort, attention, affirmation into the team that's helping you carry out that vision. Um, one of the things is we've talked about, you know, kind of what we're going to cover here. Uh, one of the phrases that popped in my head, we've all heard people say, don't take your eye off the ball. But here's the truth, right? Sometimes you have to take your eye off the ball and put your eye on the ball players. You have to, to, to keep in mind that, yeah, the ball, the vision, the game is important, but you need the ball players to get you the victory. Exactly. You do need both. You know, the, the interesting thing is you often think about in terms of a business and accomplishing goals and how a lot of these hard-headed businessmen and women, they can, you know, run over their people as they try to achieve their objectives of 20% earnings inc increase over X amount of time. And that's all true. Uh, one of the things I think about, which we're beginning to talk about is, you know, if you've come out of a crucible and maybe you've uh, had a personal tragedy, maybe an injury, professional crisis, maybe you have this vision that you don't want anybody to go through what you went through, this vision that you feel like the world needs. It may be literally lives may depend on the success of your vision. Sometimes when you feel so strongly about things, you can be so focused on the vision, in your words, tunnel vision, that you can ignore people on the way. You can be short with them. You can say, well, you know, unless perfection is achieved, you need to get off the bus. You make one mistake, you're out. Right. Uh, because lives depend on this, right? And it could be yep. literally lives depend on it. And so that's where you can be so tunnel vision, so focus on the vision that I don't know that it's worse than a nonprofit, but it can be more tempting to justify your bullheadedness, your charge ahead, damn the torpedoes kind of mentality and ignore people on the way. So ironically, if you're in some nonprofit, you would think you would care more about people and you should. But sometimes when you're so caught up in the vision, that's probably the main point. You know, the more caught up you are in your vision, the more important you think it is, the more dangerous it is. And the more, if you're not careful, you, the more tendency you might have to walk over people. It's ironic and sad. Right, because, right, if you're in a nonprofit, you're you're not doing it for the money by definition. It's a nonprofit. You're not doing it for profit. And you're doing it to help people, right? The whole idea is I, we're, we're doing great work. Some people will say we're doing God's work if it's a Christian nonprofit. Some people will say we're doing great community work, whatever that is, because the mission has such significance, to use a crucible leadership word, you can ironically, as you said, forget that you got to treat the people on your team right while you're taking care of the people that your nonprofit is serving. Yeah. And one of the things that I think we're going to get into is it's not an either or uh, position. It's not... right people versus task, people versus mission, no matter how important the mission or vision is, it's a both and. No mission or vision is so important 
that it is worth mistreating people, firing them unnecessarily, walking all over them. It's just never worth it. And obviously, as a person of faith, I think there's a lot of scriptures on there. There's a few. I mean, there's one scripture that really talks about basically zeal is good, but you know, make sure it's serving the Lord, which basically means zeal is good, but make sure you keep it in uh, in context. That's not all, all about you, which we'll also get into. But probably a favorite one of mine is there's a scripture in Mark that says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? And, you know, more broadly, it's, you know, what good is it if we accomplish the mission at the expense of the team and treading all over them? To me, it's not worth it. And as we'll get into, ironically, if you treat your team properly, you treasure your team, honor them, that you will have more chance of success, not less. And so it's basically no no vision, no mission is so important that it's worth treading all over people. It's it's just this, and that's sort of at least my opposition, if if you will. And it, it it's interesting that we framed this up in the beginning as a conversation about the balance between vision and team. And there's another balance that's kind of underneath that. I, I spent a lot of time before we we uh, started recording poking around Harvard Business Review, trying to find some articles that kind of support some of the stuff we're talking about or talk about some of the stuff that we're talking about. And it's very interesting. You say often crucible leadership makes a, a key point about the need for leaders to pursue a vision. It's it, it's 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 critical coming out of a crucible to have a vision that you can make reality and that to have a team to do that is also critical. But it's also interesting that vision's important to leaders, but vision's also important to teams. And Harvard Business Review did this fascinating study, an ongoing project serving tens of thousands of working people around the world. And it asked them a simple question. What do you look for and admire in a leader? Not surprisingly, they said honesty was number one. Number two was a sense that he or she is looking forward, right? And that's all about a vision. So teams, right after honesty and leaders, teams, the people who work for you as a leader, they want you to be forward-looking. So the need to balance is for the health of both the team and the leader. That makes it, you know, really sort of high stakes poker, if you will, doesn't it? It does. I mean, really, you want to set a vision. And as we'll get into, you want to enfold your team in that vision. I think more and more people today, I think of Chris Tuff, who we had on the podcast, who wrote the book, Millennial Whisperer, he said, millennials, they really, they want authenticity, they want vulnerability, but they also want to feel like what they do matters. They want to do work that matters. Yes, they want to get you know treated fairly and and paid at a competitive rate. So it really is a both end. If you want to accomplish your vision, you've got to uh, enfold the team. Yes, you want the right people on the bus with the right skills. They have to perform, work hard. I mean, that's all a given. You know, you want to honor your team, but it's a mutual contract. They have to have the skills and you know the desire to you know make this vision. Uh, happen. But it is, bottom line, it is a both and. It is task uh, and people from really two main standpoints. The vision won't happen with unless your team is on board. And, you know, it's my proposition that no vision is 
so worthwhile that it's worth running all over people. That's right. never a vision that's worthy of accomplishment. It certainly won't leave help you lead a life of significance, or as we talk about, a legacy that you can be proud of. Right. You know, you don't want that eulogy. You know, Fred or Mary, accom- Fred or Mary accomplished a great vision, but the body count was huge. Yeah. <laughs> you don't yeah, want that gonna... to be your eulogy. I mean, do you? I mean, who would want that? You know? Right. They'll be weeping at that eulogy, but it'll be for a different reason. Right. Um, exactly. I've right. just created, Warwick, I've just created the first Crucible Leadership Beyond the Crucible product, a bumper sticker we can create. <laughs> vision needs a team, and a team wants a vision. Absolutely. Amen. Those Absolutely. two things go together. We can yep. put that on the back of our cars and and <laughs> and move along. All of this discussion, this, this has kind of been yeah. preamble for um, yeah. a discussion on how you do that balancing work. How do you balance the the task, the mission versus the people? And this is a subject that you have written a blog about that uh, either will be at crucibleleadership.com by the time this podcast comes out or will be there shortly. You, know, you can check at crucibleleadership.com to see if, if it's up there. If it's not up there when you look right now, it will be up there soon. But uh, you unpack in that blog, Warwick, seven ways to balance task and people. And it's not, as you said, an either or. It's they're all together. How do you keep it in alignment so you don't have the painful effects of, uh, of someone with a bad back, right? That you, you, you've got it in alignment so it's all working out well. Your first point is perhaps the best one to start at because if you don't do this, the other six aren't going to fall into place, and that's value your team. Why is that so important as we look to balance mission and the team that's carrying out that mission? Yeah, part of it is what we were just talking about in terms of legacy is that no, no vision, no matter how important it is, is worth sacrificing your team. And that's really just a, uh, a value judgment. I mean, yes, as I've said, you want people that uh, are a good fit, that work hard, that buy into the vision, and you want them all to be committed. But, you know, just saying victory at all costs, I mean, that's just never a proposition that that's worthwhile. Uh, and, you know, you have to sort of ask yourself, well, what are your values? Is it really victory at all costs, no matter how many people you have to hurt? Very few people would say that. So, you know, when you build your team, just think, well, what is it you really, what's really important to you? And just make this fundamental decision that I am going to value, you know, my team as the saying goes, I'm going to treasure my employees and I want what what they think matters. I want them to feel important. Right. I mean, this idea of, and I didn't pull any of these articles, but there's lots of, it's it's interesting that a publication like the Harvard Business Review, which focuses a lot on research, they have a lot of research, you know, they have a lot of research that I found this morning on how you show appreciation, not only how you show appreciation in the workplace as a leader, but why it's so important. This idea of feeling valued. We all know what that's like. We all know what it's like to not feel valued by leadership. And that can kind of depress you in in both senses of the word. It can make you sad and it can kind of depress your energy and enthusiasm for the job. I'm going to do job description and get by if you don't feel appreciated. So that, But it can also, when you do feel appreciated, it kind of lights a fire under you. And it's not that traditional sort of you're in trouble connotation, right? we got to light a fire under that guy. No, mm-hmm. it, it lights a fire under you in a positive way because of positive things that are occurring. And that really is 
the the starting pistol for what we're talking about is this idea of valuing your team. If you start there, if your team knows that they're that you value them as much as you value the vision. And sometimes you show that you value them more than the vision, not maybe long, you know, not long term necessarily, but there are times that you pause, let's put a flag in the vision and let's focus on the people. Um, and that leads into your second point that you've unpacked in the blog is that it truly is the mission and your team. They are equal partners in your pursuit, right? It is. You know, we had somebody on the podcast a little while ago, Brian Price, who's a West Point graduate, former Army officer, and currently leads the Pacino Institute at um, Seton Hall University. And he said in the military, they talk about mission first, people always. And obviously, mm -hmm. in the military, lives are literally at stake in right. terms of, you know, how well a mission is conducted and the enemy they're against. And so it is, you know, it, it must be a both end. Um, that's almost sort of the ultimate where lives are in the balance. And the irony is, as I think we've been alluding to, is if you really care for your team and make sure they're on board and they're heard and they listen to, listen to and they contribute uh, to the process and have input into the vision, which uh, I think as we've also talked about before, that's a very brave move to allow your team to have input into the vision. One of the analogies we talk about in the book, which is uh, will be coming out later. Uh, there you October, go. Coming out when? Don't worry. October. And the book that Warwick referred to is his book called Crucible Leadership and Embrace Your Trials to Lead a Life of Significance out on October 19th, available where all fine books are sold and even some not so fine books, but Warwick's is a fine <laughs> book for sure. And so one of the stories we talk about in that book is in uh, Florence, there's the uh, Michelangelo statue of David. And so the analogy we use in Crucible Leadership is when you have a team, you've got to be willing to give them the hammer and chisel and say, okay, I'd love your input. And, you know, if you ask for input, you've got to be willing to take at least some of it. And as we also often say, if it's 80% of your vision with 100% buy-in, it's better than 100% of your vision with 0% buy-in. And so, you know, ironically, um, if, if you allow your team to contribute to the vision, they will be more bought in and your chance mm -hmm. of your vision happening is much greater. And so when we talk about it's not vision or, or team, it's basically, unless it's vision and team, there's no vision. The vision won't right. happen. So even if you're somebody that doesn't care about people, and if you don't, you probably shouldn't be a leader. But if for some <laughs> incredible reason you're a leader, well, think of it from your own selfish, self-interested point of view, which is if you want your vision to happen, you've got to get buy-in from your team. So it makes business sense, mission sense. Uh, it makes sense in terms of values and honoring people. It just makes sense on every grid you can think of. So that's why I just love what Brian Price said. It is indeed mission first, people always. It always has to be both. Right. And if, as you said, when you first brought that up from Brian, if that is a phrase, is, is a goal in, in the military where lives are literally at stake, and if it's mission first, people always in that kind of serious situation, how much more so 
when lives usually aren't at stake in what we're doing in our leadership. I am going to take a page from my journalism background and ask you a leading question now, which I think <laughs> will be an on-ramp into point three of uh, how to balance uh, task and people. And that is, why, Warwick, do you think that many leaders, some leaders, just aren't that good in showing appreciation, bringing the team along, building a team to help carry out the vision? Why do you think that's so hard for some leaders? I think at the root, it's ego. Sometimes that's the third point. In the, that's the third point in the blog, listeners. Exactly. Check your ego. There you go. Yeah, the e word, ego. You know, sometimes you have a vision, and let's maybe in the business world, it's a new invention. You see, there's a market need, and it's boy, you know, you're really in love with yourself, and this is going to rev. This piece of technology is going to revolutionize the market, and. Um, you just feel like this is this is my ticket, you know, to the big house, you know, to the right. nice house, the boat, the lifestyle, the, all of your dreams will be achieved. And uh, even in the nonprofit world, you know, maybe this um, thing you're founding can uh, provide clean water in parts of Africa that don't have it. Maybe it's a new low-cost filtration system or something. So it could be for-profit, it could be nonprofit, but... In either case, you can feel like this is important and I'm pretty hot stuff. Even when you don't mean to mistreat people, when it's all about you, we can end up getting short. We can maybe cut relational corners. We can get impatient. And uh, it's like, you know, these folks are letting me down. I mean, maybe I need to cycle through a few dozen senior team members until I have somebody right. find somebody that doesn't make a mistake. Because, you know, it's one strike and you're out because this is too important either because this is going to make me tons of money. And if we wait around, the competitor might strike. So we just, you know, we can't afford people that only work 23 hours a day. It's got to be 24 hour a day minimum and no mistakes. And um, they have to say yes to every idea I have because after all, I'm never wrong and they're always wrong. And, you know, taken to its extreme, ego can... Um, be a huge problem of, of having both team and vision and ego, frankly, unchecked, can also prove the death knell with business. It's, it's ironic that when you think about small businesses that become successful, very often they stall out at the small to medium category because the founder has so much ego, which can be good for drive in the sense of getting stuff off the ground, but then they can't bring in professional managers because typically the founder is an entrepreneur and entrepreneurs right. are rarely good general managers and general managers aren't always good entrepreneurs. You, know, you can't have all the gifts. So smart entrepreneurs say, look, I'm still going to be the visionary. I'll be out there promoting it, selling it, advocating it, but I'm going to leave somebody else to run it day to day. Well, why doesn't that happen more often? The ego gets in the way. It's an extremely right. common. So don't let your ego get in the way. There's a great Harvard Business Review article that I found, the headline of which summarizes exactly what you're saying. Ego is the enemy of good leadership. And it lists, it, it, it says straight up that overcoming that, getting beyond that temptation to sort of live in ego is, as Harvard Business Review puts it, it requires selfless, selflessness, reflection, and courage. And they gave three tips. I want to read these three tips because they're, they're, they're pretty short, but they're good. And how 
to help you overcome a a recognize if ego may be a problem and two overcome it. One, consider the perks and privileges you're being offered in your role. Some of them enable you to do your job effectively, and that's great, but some of them are simply perks to promote your status and power and ultimately ego. Consider which of your privileges you can let go of. It could be that reserved parking spot, or it could be a special pass for the elevator. The second point, support, develop, and work with people, you touched on this, Warwick, who won't feed your ego. Hire smart people with the confidence to speak up. And the last one, I just love everything they say in this third tip on how to how to sidestep, overcome ego being a challenge for you. Humility and gratitude are the cornerstone of selflessness. Make a habit of taking a moment at the end of each day to reflect on all the people who were part of making you successful on that day. This helps you develop a natural sense of humility by seeing how you are not the only cause of your success. And end the reflection by actively sending a message of gratitude to those people you identified. Practice those things, and it's hard to to sort of blindly walk with ego being your driver, isn't it? It really is. I mean, it reminds me of a book by Jim Collins, which we also talk about in the book, uh, Good to Great. And he did a study based on a number of companies that had 15 years of, you know, okay uh, returns to the stock market, followed by 15 years of fantastic returns. And they were all driven leaders, but they were also humble. And when you ask them keys to success, one says, well, I just have a great team. It's almost like I just get out of the way, let my team do their thing. It's not right. quite that simple, but they're all humble. And so yeah, great leaders, they do check their ego at the door. They're not afraid of hiring people that are better, quicker, smarter than they are. And why wouldn't right. you be? If you're all about success, why does it matter if your team is better than you? I mean, ironically, you can't be good at all things. So maybe you have somebody that's fantastic at marketing, sales, manufacturing, research and development. You can't be the expert at all those things. Nobody can be. But in their field, they're bound to know more than you will. I mean, if they don't, you're probably hiring the wrong people um, right. in terms of their particular field of expertise. So yeah, it just makes sense. Ego does get in the way of success. So um, ego tends to trample on along people. And so I don't know that people wake up in the morning saying, how many people am I going to chew out today? You know, be like, you know, policemen don't wake up saying, okay, um, how many people can I give traffic tickets to today? Maybe they do. I'd like to think they don't. You <laughs> My know? dad was a cop. He, he did have quotas he had to hit, but I don't know that, I don't know that he woke up thinking that. <laughs> but you don't want to think, how many people can I fire today? You know, it's like, right. you're fired. I just love that. Yeah, you're fired. I mean, it's like, really? That, that can't be your uh, attitude to life. So yeah, ego gets in the way of success. It makes poor business and organizational sense. Uh, so you definitely got to check your ego at the door if you want to be successful. 
That's point number three. Point number four sort of logically follows off that, and that is focus on the process, not the outcome. And 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 I say that logically follows from what from what we just discussed because what we just discussed was you know the idea of the outcome could be okay. I've got to fire you. I'm going to get you. You know I've got to hold you accountable. I've got to focus on the process, not the outcome. What were you thinking when you wrote that, Warwick? You know, really, it probably goes with ego. You can get so focused on your vision, so manic about it that it's got to succeed. It's got to succeed immediately. And focus on the process might be it's good to have a clear vision. It's good to have a well thought out strategy. And you want to have a great team, but you also want to take it a day at a time. You know, really, you can't control the results of what's going to happen. Uh, you know, maybe the economy goes south, maybe the competition's there, government regulation. There's all sorts of things in life that can um, alter the outcome that you desire, the outcome that you want. But you have a good strategy, have a good team. And really the issue is, you know, what's my goal for today, for next week, for next month? You know, what, typically to achieve anything great, there's a process and it takes can take forever. But don't be so fixated on the result that you ignore the process. Because if you know the you ignore the day the day to day process, well, the result and the outcome probably won't happen. So you right. know, stay in the now. Have a plan. Have a strategy. But stay in the now. This is the moment of of every podcast. And it doesn't happen on every podcast, but every podcast that happens on, I love because this is my chance to maybe embarrass you a little by <laughs> by saying what you just said, Warwick. In all honesty and, and 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 seriousness, what you just said is a good description of what happened in your life after your takeover bid for the family media company failed, and it it was not an overnight process that led to that book that you held up. There was there was a lot of years. This was in 1990 when the failure took place, and your process took a while. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, sometimes you don't even know what the steps are. Like, you know, as listeners know, I got a, a job in a local aviation uh, services company in Maryland doing business and financial analysis and went to a mid, uh, executive coach that did mid-career assessment that said I had a good um, sort of an advisor, reflective type that uh, maybe being executive coach would be good. So, you know, all these were sort of waypoints, but I just, I didn't quite know where it was going to end up, but I just followed the path. But, um, you know, even this book, I mean, this book is, uh, is 12 years in the making, literally. As right. listeners know, in 2008, the pastor of our church here uh, wanted me to give a talk about basically what I went through and because it's a church, what I felt like God was teaching me through it. Somehow it resonated with, um, with people weeks and months after, even though, you know, I was sort of the only ex-media mogul in the church that day, but somehow <laughs> somehow it resonated. Well, okay, so then it took me a few years to write it, because imagine you're spending time writing about the most painful experiences in your life, in some cases, right. some of the most dumbest decision. After two or three hours a day, I was done. I needed to recover for the rest of the day before I went to the lion's den, and let's relive those that pain again. But even once I'd written it to get it published, you know, I chatted to some folks in Australia and you know, for a variety of reasons, maybe it was too close or wanted more sensational or, uh, you know, didn't quite work out, came over, you know, was looking to get it published here. And um, 
that was a whole process. It's like, well, you need a brand. Okay, I guess, you know, brought in some great brand, branding people from in Denver, Signal, CSK, and uh, yourself uh, from Raw in terms of public relations and helping me fine-tune the book. I mean, it was step after step after step. And even, you know, the most recent story, just over this last year, we signed a book deal with uh, Mount Table Media and Morgan James almost exactly a year ago. But then we had to, you know, condense the book a bit, you know, maybe 20% or so. So I had an editor kind of assist me with that. And then you and I went through it page by page, and you know, refining it. More than the, once we went by, I mean, page by page several times. Right? Oh, yeah. And then it's like, okay, great. Well, then we need a book cover. So we had somebody who was an expert in cover design and then interior layout. Had somebody advise us on that. And then, okay, we, what images do we want? And it's just step after step after step after step. It almost seemed endless, but it's, you just got to say, well, this in this case, this mission, this book, this is too important to short circuit. I mean, just the cover, mm-hmm. we went through numerous versions to get the right one, you know, and to get the back cover and to get the right quotes, which you, Gary, helped with tremendous, you know, help with a lot just to help figure out which ones. But, you know, good good things are worth doing well. And so don't, don't tread over people and don't uh, short circuit the process. If you short circuit the process out of impatience, and I like to feel like I'm actually pretty impatient, good things don't happen. So if you, if you value the mission and the vision, follow the process step, a step at a time. And it'll be annoying because each step will seem like it takes forever, but it's worth it. It absolutely is worth it. You'll have a better product, a better executed vision, than if you don't try to live in the now and live each day. Right. And the way that you've uh, worded this in the blog, uh, and I'll go back to the way I introduced it, focus on the process, not on the outcome. Let's apply that. Let's put that, that framework over the story that you just told about your own journey. If you, at any point in the process, leapt forward to the outcome, you wouldn't hold in your hand what you hold in your hand, you'd hold something in your hand, but it wouldn't be that as good as that is, as focused as that is, as as excellent as that is. I want the listener to really grasp this this idea. You you come out of a crucible, you have a vision, uh, you're moving to execute it, you have a team there. Take the time to be able to Warwick says it a lot on this show. Almost every episode, he'll talk about what's one small step you can take to do X, Y, or Z. Focus on the process. Focus on those small steps, as Warwick just described. Some of it was hiring a branding firm. Some of it was hiring an editor to help him condense the book and rearrange the chapters a little bit. Any of those steps skipped or rushed would have affected the outcome. So focusing on the process, not not the outcome, ensures a better outcome. So I mean, let, let me give you one specific example. And over the last year, one specific step. So when we went to Morgan James a year ago. The book's about a hundred was about a hundred thousand words, which is not terrible. But they said, look, you know, our preference would be to have it based on their experience. You know, it'll be a better book, a tighter book if we can get it somewhere around 80,000. Now, they said to me, we'll publish as is. You know, we, th- we, we like it. We think it's good. But 
you know, we found a good editor, but getting it to 80,000 was going to take, I don't know, a couple months. Maybe it was more, I forget. But, you know, it was somewhere around a couple months. Now, I could have said, I'm not willing to wait. Let's right. just go. After I've all, been waiting 12 years. I want to go now. After right? all, they said, yes. Why not say, Why not right. take the win? They said they're willing to publish it. But my attitude was, look, look, I grew up in newspapers. 80, an 80,000 book is almost always better than a 100,000 book. You, get, you cut out the, the, the fat, the wastage, if you will. So why would I not want it to be a better book? If it takes a couple months and more rereading and more tinkering, let's do it. But that was a conscious decision. Don't say yes to the 100,000 just because somebody's going to say yes. But when they give you good advice, and these are experts in their field, and it's like, it would be a better book if we can get it to 80. Thank you. Great. Let's get it to 80. Yep. And that, you're saying that in the context of the journey that will lead to in October, the publication of Crucible Leadership, the book, but it applies to any crucible anyone's gone through as they build a vision to come back from that crucible and a team to... to to carry it out. Focus on process, not the outcome. Point four. That was point four. Point five. Here's another one that's hard for leaders sometimes. Be willing to apologize. So here's the thing is, if you're a passionate person about your vision, and every visionary leader that I know is, if you're not passionate about the vision, what, what in the heck are you doing? You know, just don't do it. But you have to be passionate about your vision. And pretty much every visionary leader I know that is. Problem with passion is sometimes you get so passionate that you can get short with people. You can get impatient. And unwittingly, you can start treading on people, you know, causing problems. And so when that happens, you have to be willing to apologize. You've got to be willing to say, you know what, I messed up. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, you just got to be willing to do that because. Yeah, I think your team is going to understand. They're passionate too, but inevitably you are going to make mistakes. You're going to say things you shouldn't say and accidentally tread on people. When that happens, apologize. We're human. It will happen. It's inevitable. So right. apologize and then you can move on. Don't apologize and people might start leaving, especially if you do it too much. Right. And the you know, going back to the first point that we, you know, that we talked about here, value your team. That's one of the ways you show that you value your team is apology. And, it, and a real heartfelt apology, not oh. what I call a Janet Jackson apology. If you remember during the Super Bowl a decade or so ago, Janet Jackson had her wardrobe malfunction and she said, I'm sorry if anybody was offended. That isn't an apology. She should have said I'm sorry I did this, not that. Yeah, one of my pet peeves is the sorry if. Because the right. sorry if means I did nothing wrong and you know, you're just overly sensitive. So I'm sorry if that if because you're so sensitive and weak skinned that it hurt you. That's almost worth worse than no apology. So yeah, no no sorry ifs. That's, that's, right. That and never works. It, it it's it's salt in the wounds. It's it's not a good idea. And there's no way to go through life without I mean we bump into each other in life, right? Figuratively and literally. We all are going to encounter situations where we have to apologize. My dad, I said earlier, was a cop. My dad taught me this thing about car accidents. You're always at fault in some way for a car accident. Even if your car is parked on a, 
on the side of the road and somebody hits you, the cop will give you 3% of the, of the fault because your car was parked there. In other words, it's hard to go through life. And if you think you're one of the people that can go through life with never making a mistake that needs an apology, sorry, you are, as Fonzie would have said, not apologizing correctly on happy days. You are, you're wrong. You, you will encounter situations where you have to apologize. Do it honestly, do it with integrity and do it fully not halfway and not falsely. Uh, the sixth point in your blog that we'll talk about, uh, you talk about recalibrating. As After all these five other points have happened, what do you mean by recalibrate at that point? So sometimes it can be because you've just written over people and you need to apologize. Sometimes it can be you know, you're ego-driven, you're not following the process, you're not consulting your team. What that means is it can be, you know what, folks, I was so focused on the vision. I thought, man, if we don't get to market soon, we'll lose our opportunity. You know, we need to get moving because this nonprofit, maybe it's, um, you know, some uh, thing will save lives and other countries, whatever it is, you need to say, look, not only I'm sorry, but here's what we're going to do different. You know, we're going to, I'm going to consult you more. I want your input more. I want you to feel heard. Yeah, we talk about creating safe places. Well, you want to create safe places where people can really feel that they're valued and their input is important. So it's one thing to apologize, but as we'll get into with sort of the final point is you've got to um, kind of recalibrate and uh, let people know that things will be different and then tell them what, what is going to be different. That's absolutely key. And the last point, point seven, the the perfect number, seven, point seven, is walk the talk on all of these things. If you if you added them all up, uh, as you see them on the blog, when you go to crucibleleadership.com and you see the blog on this subject, listener, take those first six steps, add them all up. At the end of the day, step seven is the linchpin. Step seven is the is the coda. Step seven is the is the glue that 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 holds it all together. Walk the talk. Unpack that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, some people feel like leadership is about great speeches. They give the one big great speech, and they expect life to change. Well, it's not. It's about living it out day to day. You've got to live your message. And so, if you talk about, you know what. We're going to do do it differently. I want to hear your opinions. Um, I want to make sure, maybe it's not consensus, but I definitely want to hear your input. Somebody comes into your office and say, hey, look, you know, boss, I just have this idea. Um, actually, I'm kind of busy now. I come back tomorrow. You come back, they come back tomorrow and you're still busy. Or they offer an idea. And every single time they offer an idea, in fact, every single time anybody in your team offers an idea over the next three months, it's always no. But then you keep saying, but I'm open to your opinions. It's just as soon as one of you knuckleheads has an opinion worth listening to, I'll listen to it. <laughs> right. But but and, and until then, until you're able to find a brain and a clue, of course I'm going to ignore you, you know? In fact, I'm close to firing you. But as I said, I treasure my employees and your opinion matters. I mean, you know, you've got to walk the talk. You've You've got to be able to listen to them. And really, one of the final things we talk about in the blog in that point is you've got to trust the process and you've got to trust the outcome. Don't be so focused on on the outcome that, oh, you know, I want to achieve X 
goals for my business or my nonprofit. It's good to have goals and strategies, but sometimes plans change, whether it's the market, the economy, or people's needs change. And that's okay. You, you've got to trust to whether you're a person of faith, whether that's God, fate, or the universe, what have you, that if you put your maximum effort in, you feel like you've got a good plan and a good team, you've got to trust trust the process and trust whatever the outcome happens because you can't control the outcome. You can control your effort and your plans and the process and your team, but you know the precise outcome is not guaranteed. Good things do tend to happen if you've got a good team, a good plan, and you thought it through, but um, don't get so fixated on the outcome. Trust the process, trust the team, and that is a much better way to go. Yeah, and the outcome to say it takes care of itself is a bit of a of a misnomer because you're following these seven steps. You're going back to that initial Harvard Business Review story I said of what employees want to see in leaders. The first thing was honesty, right? In addition to a vision. You put all those things together and that that helps shape the outcome. So the outcome doesn't necessarily take care of itself. Your steps, your one small steps that you talk about, yours trust the process, the stones in the road as you walk that journey to get your vision into reality. As you walk that journey to take your vision for a book to reality, that helps shape the outcome. And if you do it with consistency, if you do it with honesty, if you do it with humility, it leads to a better outcome, doesn't it? Well, it does. I mean, it, it leads... It leads to a legacy that you can be proud of. So I know one thing we kind of talked a bit about beforehand and uh, just been thinking about is John Fairfax's legacy. That's sort of an interesting thing. And John Fairfax, just so we can set it right, John Fairfax is your great-great-grandfather. Uh, John Fairfax founded the company that was John Fairfax Limited and then became Fairfax Media and had some other names. That's the company that you launched to take over for that was unsuccessful. Indeed, the large 150-year-old family media company. And he was a person of faith. He was a great businessman, great husband, uh, great dad. But, you know, uh, there are some things that his employees said about him after he died. But before I get to that, I just want to give you an idea of just a short story of you know why he was so beloved by well, his family and, and absolutely his employees. Uh, in 1841, not that long after he bought the, the company, Australia got in a huge depression. A lot of prices of commodities were down. A lot of people were laid off. And so while he tried to raise you know, rates, you know, revenue, uh, he had to, he told people that he would have to lower the wages of his employees. Now, obviously, you know, in the middle of a depression, they weren't happy. But, you know, he said, um, but he sort of basically told them, you know, I, I have nothing but sympathy for what you've gone through. You know, the price of bread and board is rising and there are mouths to feed at home. We wouldn't suggest this under normal times, but these aren't normal times. And unless we drain, unless we, you know, cut costs, both, you know, your job, you know, your job and ours, you know, will be will be in great danger. So, you know, we believe the Sydney Morning Herald can be grow and strong and be a great paper, and you'll be proud to be, you know, back then, you know, a Herald man. 
And if you accept my proposal, I know in a short while uh, the depression will, you know, will get past this, and you know you'll have a job, and and you know we'll all do well. And you know he wasn't going to he's going to pull out wages pro rata. So it wasn't like you know the, the owner gets everything. So basically, right. he said, you know, this is the only way we can weather the storm. So they thought about it and they agreed. And while a lot of other folks were out of work. They still had jobs. You know, a job is better than no job. And so what is the result of, um, of all of this? So when he died in 1877, you know, they praised his uh, conscientious desire at the realization of a high ideal. They said that, you know, we've, we feel in his departure, we have lost a kind employer and a valued friend. How many employees say about their boss that he or she was a kind employer and a valued friend? It's extremely, it's extremely r- rare. And just in terms of his legacy, picture this, if this was at your funeral. So at, at the church he went to, Pittstreet Congregational Church, the pastor chose this um, text from Second Samuel. And in the King James, it goes, Know ye not that there is a prince and a great man fallen this day in Israel. Wouldn't mm-hmm. you like this, that to be your legacy? Know that today that there was a great man, a great woman, this day who has died. You know, if somebody is, if pastor is going to say that about you in church, they're probably not going to define being a great man or woman as how much money you've earned, or how many titles you have or accolades. It's probably going to be more because of your character. So when I think about somebody being vision and team, and you know the the company grew to be 150 role, huge company, but it treated he treated his employees well, and the company grew. So it is both and, and I think John Fairfax's legacy is emblematic of really what we're talking about here. And not is it not just is it emblematic, but it's it's a it's a roadmap. The story that you just told is a roadmap of everything that we've just discussed. And I I want to uh, suggest, listener, that after I read what I'm about to read, I go through it, you rewind the podcast and listen and and, and see if I'm not right. Because I believe what, that story that you just told about your great-great-grandfather encompasses all seven points that we've just been talking about. One, value your team. John Fairfax did. Two, it's the mission and your team, right? He kept the team in mind as well as the mission of having the greatest newspaper uh, that he could have. Check your ego. There's not a lot of ego in a, in a leader who doesn't take all the money for himself in, 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 in hard times. He, he gives that money. You know, he, he's one of the team. He's, he, he doesn't put himself above the team. Focus on the process, not the outcome. That whole letter that you described he wrote about, you know, to the team about we have to take a cut in wages. That is, that is process, not outcome. Uh, he suggested an outcome, but he emphasized process was going to get them there. Uh, be willing to apologize. Uh, there, there may not be an apology per se in the midst of what he said, but he certainly in some ways was apologetic about the fact that he had to cut this. It, it was certainly day. showing empathy and- Correct. Uh, you know. Correct. Yeah. His demeanor was was empathetic and, and apologetic, and I wish I didn't have to do this. Number six, recalibrate. Talk to the team and let them know that moving forward, it must be the vision in the team. He did that in that letter. And, and seven, I've heard you say it, Warwick, uh, a dozen times, if I've heard you say it once, 
rarely, never have you seen a businessman, more a businessman for Christ than John Fairfax. John Fairfax walked the talk. And what you just explained in that story emphasized that. Well, and, you know, the other thing, um, since you mentioned that, is on his 50th birthday, his uh, family gave him this huge silver centerpiece, which is still in the which is still in in the family, and I mean, you know, I'm sure they had to order it from England, and um, they just basically they admired and and loved their dad so much. So sometimes these visionaries, they ignore their families on the way up. The vision is so important. He 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 did not. I mean, they talk about uh, you know the deep respect they his children had for his character and his unchanging parental love. You know, talked about affection and esteem, and yeah. And John's reply was, "Your gift is elegant and costly. Your latter is precious." So the gift was nice, but what mattered more than the gift was the love of his kids. So yeah, I mean, that's sort of a life well lived when you can receive that kind of love and affection from your family. Doesn't often happen for successful businessmen and women, right? And that's a businessman who knew the value of balancing vision and mission with team and knew how to carry that out. To help listeners know where to move next, one of the things we do in all that you do in every blog you write is at the end you have questions for reflection. And I I thought we'd leave listeners this uh, week with what I thought was the was a great first suggestion that goes in line with what you say all the time about what's one small step you can take. And you say the first reflection question in your blog is assess the state of their of your team. Are they committed to the vision and eager for the journey ahead, or, or do they seem disheartened and ready to check out? You talk also in the book, Crucible Leadership, out October 19th. Uh, you talk in the book about doing 360 evaluations and asking people uh, who work for you how you're doing. I mean, talk to the listener a little bit about this first, you know, if they take this first step, why why is it important to assess where the team's at and, and then move forward? Well, you've certainly got to check your ego at the door. You've got to be willing to ask, you know, uh, so what do you think of the vision? Well, you ask that question, they might say, well, I think it's dumb. Well, you know, but you've got to be willing to ask that. You know, how do you feel about it? Uh, what, how do you feel your role is? Um, are you excited about it? They might say, oh, I don't know. I mean, it depends how much damage you've done. You know, it might take a while to create a place where they feel it's safe to, to be heard. But certainly 360s can be part of that. The wise leader, and 360s basically meaning the people above you, people who are your peers, and people who are below you. And so depending on where you are in the management chain, the smart leaders listen to that. Because if everybody around you says, Joe or Mary, you know, they're kind of impatient, impulsive, and they never listen. They could all be wrong, but they're probably not. Perception is reality. If everybody around you has a certain perception, the wise leader says, it must be right, no matter what I think. If they, perception is reality. If everybody thinks I'm this hot-headed person that never listens, I probably am. So then try and figure out what you can do different. But this can definitely work if you're willing to be humble enough to listen and really listen. And that can be a challenge, frankly, for many leaders. 360-degree feedback is useless if a leader will say, oh, I know who that is. They never like me. You know, even though it's meant to be anonymous, I've seen that. 
and it's it's very discouraging. So assess the state of your team, but check that your ego at the door before you do that. And that I've learned through decades in the communication business is when the plane lands and the final word has been spoken on a subject. Listener, thank you for spending time with us on this episode of Beyond the Crucible. As always, Warwick and I would ask, visit crucibleleadership.com, poke around. There's some great resources there. You can learn more about the book there when you go visit. We're gonna, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put that stake in the ground and say that's going to be already and up on the website uh, by the time this podcast comes out. If I'm wrong, it'll be there soon, but I don't think I'll be wrong. I think it'll be there for you. And remember, until the next time that we're together, listener, the crucible experience can be painful. We know it is painful. Warwick has gone through them. He's talked about them often. I've gone through them. You've gone through them. Your failures and setbacks can be soul-crushing in some cases, very painful. But remember this, your crucible experiences are not the end of your story. In fact, If you learn the lessons from them, if you apply those lessons moving forward one step at a time, if you take that view of not the destination right now, but the journey, if you walk that journey with the lessons you learn from your crucible, the chapter that you're writing can be the most rewarding and memorable chapter of your life because where it leads you is to a life of significance.